about old people's sexism. <laughs> okay. It's much more subtle now. Men assert their power through microaggressions and mansplaining. Oh, mansplaining. Is that like manscaping? I just learned that and I love it. <laughs> no. Mansplaining is when, when a man, man explains something to a woman. That she already knows, but he acts like he's teaching her. What, I was just explaining what mansplaining... Oh, wow. <laughs> Elena, microaggressions and all this little crap. If I got bent out of shape every time a man said something stupid, you wouldn't be here. That was a clip from the 2017 Netflix sitcom One Day at a Time about a Cuban-American family living in a multi-generational household. A multi-generational living is not a new phenomenon, but it is becoming more common. The number of Americans living in multi-generational households has quadrupled since 1971. That's according to the Pew Research Center. And that number includes some of you. I live with my mother, who's 77, my sister, who's 48 or 9, I never can remember, And then I'm 60. And I absolutely love it. I moved back in after a divorce and have been living with my uh, mom and sister for five years. And it's absolutely a blast. We have a great time. We love to joke with each other. I love hearing my mother's story that she gets to tell us that um, because she lived by herself, so she wasn't able to really chat with many people. So I think this is a great outlet for her as well. Adrian, thanks for that message. Financial issues are often cited as the top reason people choose to live in multi-generational households, but it can be about more than money. It can benefit older adults who require caretaking, parents in need of child care, and young adults not yet ready to be on their own. This episode, we get into multi-generational households, the pros, the cons, and hear your stories. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay tuned. Let's get into it. Joining us to talk about the joys, pains, and economic gains of multi-generational households is Michelle Singletary. She's a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Her three adult children are currently living with her. Michelle, it's great to have you back. Oh, thank you for having me. Also with us is Alexandra Solomon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in families, relationships, and marriages at Northwestern University. She's also the host of the podcast, Reimagining Love. Alexandra, welcome back. What a treat to be with you. Thank you for having me. And Hope Harvey. She's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Kentucky. Her research focuses on housing, poverty, and doubled-up households. Professor Harvey, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Alexandra, when we say multi-generational household, what are the different ways this can look? Well, I think that you hit the nail on the head that it really is largely emerging adults. So think, you know, 18 to 25, 30-ish with their parents. And there's a smaller percentage, you know, 5% are grandparents with their grandchildren under 25. But I was really struck by this Pew data that 40% of men in the U.S. who are aged 25 to 29 are living with their older relatives. And that's compared to only about 25% of women in that same age bracket. And and is there an indication why? 
you know, it is not surprising in that when you track educational attainment and also career success, women tend to be overall outperforming men, you know, kind of across girls and women outperforming boys and men at a number of levels. So I think what we're seeing is is the demographics starting to reflect that, that it's just, you know, women tend to be a bit more thriving right now than their, than their same age male counterparts. Professor Harvey, what are you finding about why there's been a rise in these households over the past several decades. Yeah, so I study families with children um, mostly. And so we've seen a big increase in these multi-generational households with a parent, grandparent, and child. Um, And so today, about 10% of kids live in multi-generational households. That's as high as uh, the sort of peak that we last saw in 1950. So uh, we have seen a really big increase in these multi-generational households. I think that there's still a lot of research to be done about why we're seeing this increase. Um, But many of the things that drive families into these multi-generational households, um, the difficulty of affording um, housing that they want to provide for their families, uh, the challenges of getting affordable child care, things like that. Um, you can imagine those challenges have certainly increased in recent years. Um, and at the same time, with the rise of Social Security receipt, uh, we've seen that the economic security of grandparents may have been increasing a bit. Um, and so these households might be a response to that. You also looked at doubled up households. What are those? Yeah, so doubled up households um, include multi-generational households. Doubled up households are any household that includes an adult besides the householder and householder's romantic partner. So for families with children, the group that I study, this does most often involve living with a grandparent, um, but it can also be with other extended families, say an aunt um, or even with non-kin. Now, Michelle, you recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post about how most Americans believe the American dream is out of reach for their children. How do you think multi-generational households help families build wealth for future generations? Well, we know that we spend such a great percentage of our income on housing, anywhere from 30 to, in many communities, 50, and sometimes 60 percent. And so if you are able to curtail that, you can reduce that. That leaves you money on the table to put into your retirement account, to save for a larger down payment on your home, or in some cases, you know, maybe pay for the house outright. That's my goal for my kids. I say, stay here, save your salaries for several years. Then when you launch, you'll have enough to pay for a house outright or close to it. And so, and then if you can imagine in your 30s that you have a small mortgage or no mortgage, and then you're able to save for decades, you have a secure retirement and you can retire early and maybe start a second career. And so I I am a huge advocate for multi-generational living. We begged our kids to stay. They were reluctant, um, but now, (laughs) You know, they are having fat paycheck go into their accounts and they're feeling it right now. Well, I I was wondering how much convincing (laughs) it took, Michelle. how, How long of a conversation was this with your kids? Oh, it was a long conversation. (laughs) I mean, with my oldest, she's 27. It started when she went to undergrad and she went to grad school. So it started right at grad school. So for about two two years, then she volunteered, well, not volunteered, but she uh, spent an internship in Houston where she wasn't paid a lot. So it was that whole 18 months she was there. We're like, come home, stay. You know, she's like, "Mm -mm, use a crazy woman. I don't want to live under the roof with you. (laughs) And I was a tough parent. 
parent. And I get that, right? The relationship is now changing um, because they're young adults. And so it took a lot of persuading. Uh, and she wasn't sure how the dynamics would work because she's an adult now, full-fledged adult. But it's working out beautifully. And and one the thing that we asked her is, here's what you can do. Uh, if you live here, you're not paying rent. You can put more in your retirement account. And she is. She's putting away 15% of her pay. And she has a non-retirement investing account that she's putting a great deal of money in because she she's driving the car she drove in high school. Mm-hmm. No beater. Uh, and so now she'll be able to pay cash for that car, when, that new car, when she's ready to buy it. I mean, we're talking about financial game changing here. Uh, and that's really why we wanted to do that. We get a lot of criticism. Oh, you don't want to let the go. You don't want to cut the cord. But this isn't about that. It's about helping them launch with the financial security that could set them up for life. Well, we got this tweet from Nafisa who says, I moved back in with my family to take on financial responsibilities in my 20s in a tough time. Are there any statistics about younger generations caring for families, particularly among communities of color? Professor Harvey, what can you tell us? Yeah, so um, so families with kids who uh, who live in these multi generational households, as I've said, they um, they've experienced a big increase in recent years. And so families um, in my sample of the families who are doubled up with children that I talked to, they had really diverse reasons for returning um, or forming these households. So a lot of families moved in with their um, parent or with another um, household because they were in need of urgent housing. So for example, after an eviction or after a relationship breakup, a lot of families um, doubled up. But then also um, a lot of families doubled up, not just because they were in crisis mode, um, but for example, if they were trying to pursue a goal. So maybe they were trying to achieve home ownership or um, higher education. And it's just really hard to do that while paying so much in rent. So a lot of these families moved um, back home for that reason. And then a substantial share of families just sort of never moved out of their childhood homes. So they had a, um, a child while living in their childhood home. They remained there. Uh, maybe they couldn't afford their own housing. Maybe they could afford housing, but they didn't like the home and neighborhood that they would be able to provide for their family. And so they stayed there. And specifically for, for a younger person moving back in, not because they're necessarily going to benefit financially, but because they're trying to lighten the financial load for their parents or grandparents. Do you have any statistics about that? Or is that an area of research that still need it? Yeah, so most families with children who live in these multi-generational households um, are more likely to be guests. So in my research, I find that, um, so guests meaning they're living in their parents' home. So um, in my research, I find that uh, the guests are more likely to be sort of benefiting financially, and other research shows that um, guests are more likely to experience a decrease in poverty than our hosts. But I do find that um, these households often involve an exchange of resources, right? And so the guests um, sometimes might not be paying but many times they are contributing to the household expenses, and so that can benefit their parent as well. Um, sometimes they're providing that care support, um, and living with their parent is making it easier to provide that support. So there is an exchange of resources in these households, yeah. We got a tweet from Roberta who says, During COVID, we invited my 96-year-old uncle to live with us. It was easier and healthier than going over to his apartment with food and checking in. We love having him with us, and we think he likes us too. He's a gift. But for some of you, it was a little bumpier than that. My name is Mackenzie. I live in Northwest Arkansas and I just moved out from living with my parents and grandparents and my older siblings in a multi-generational household. 
I moved in in 2020 after I graduated from college during the pandemic. My job out of state was canceled because of the pandemic. So I was like, okay, back home. Living with my parents and grandparents was quite the ride. I often became the adult mediator between them um, because they didn't always see eye to eye. Overall, I'm glad I had the time with them because I wouldn't have had that time with my grandma or my parents as an adult. So it was great. Don't know if I'd do it again, though. It's kind of crazy. Alexander, what advice would you give families that are new to this arrangement and, and struggling to adjust? I, I do think that there there's both opportunity and challenge in this kind of arrangement. And I think, you know, the story that we just heard, it sounds like that was for many, like for many families, it was sort of forced upon the family system, right? Based on, you know, in this story, a COVID crisis and other stories, it can be sort of, it can feel forced, you know, based on a job change or a job loss or some other kind of economic crisis. So I think it goes best, you know, when it feels feels chosen when it feels like an adaptation, as in Michelle's story. But I think that no matter why the situation is happening, I think it is the opportunity here is for both generations to get to know each other again, right? Because the kids are not the kids they used to be. And by the way, the parents are not the parents that they used to be. So that's an opportunity for rediscovery, for meeting each other and navigating that adult to adult relationship, which always has to happen. You know, every all kids have to sort of differentiate from the family system that they grew up in. But certainly, if there's going to be a multi-generational household, there needs to be differentiation, which means I feel separate from you while also feeling connected to you. So that really is the developmental task that we see when everybody is under one roof. And it's possible, but it requires intention, it requires conversation, it requires uh, curiosity and it requires boundaries. Michelle, I have I have to ask you. So you yeah. you told your kids to move back in because you, you wanted them to be able to meet certain financial goals, but at the same time, you have to trust that they're actually working towards the goals they set. So I'm trying to understand from you the balance between you're here for this reason. I'm going to trust you to do that. But maybe the mom and personal finance expert instinct to want to check in and see how things are going. I mean, how are you, how are you balancing that? Oh, I check. Oh, no, I look. <laughs> <laughs> what you talking about? I'm like, trust but verify. <laughs> And I, I love what Alexandra said. You know, we had conversations, we are communicated, we do have boundaries. And here's what we said to them. You can live here rent free. You don't even have to contribute to utilities and stuff like that because we were already covering that mm-hmm. as long as you do X. And the agreement is safe for retirement. The agreement is that you save a great deal of your uh, paycheck towards your goals. They pick the goals. And as long as you do that and we check on there, are you doing that? How's that going? You know, let me see. Uh, And sometimes they bulk, but that's the agreement, you know. And if you don't want that checkup as part of our agreement, then you can go ahead and move out. Uh, And so, I mean, you know, you know, listen, they're young adults. I get it. If I see a whole bunch of shopping bags, I'm like, I got some questions. Uh, And so if the youngest who is a new teacher, uh, she wanted to move out. She wasn't feeling the whole, you know, stay here until she started to look at what it costs to rent Mm. and to find a decent place. Right. And she's like, it would take an entire paycheck. She gets two paychecks a month as a teacher. It would take an entire paycheck, which is basically 50% of her net income. And she, having grown up under her dad, her mom, was said to me, I 
to us. I don't want to live paycheck to paycheck like that, mommy. And so she decided, despite the fact that she was like, I don't want to do this, that it was the best thing to get her financial footing. And so she's doing the same thing as her olders. And our son is here. He um, is on the autism spectrum. So he needs a little bit more time and room. So there's a reason for each one to be here. And, and it's what has been key is communication. Uh, and we don't treat them like they are kids. They can come and go. The only thing we ask is if you're going to stay overnight someplace, just let us know. So I'm not freaking out that you didn't get home. Other than that, I, you know, do you. Uh, and that's why it's successful for us. We're discussing multi-generational households. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Bill. Yeah, my name is Bill, and my grandmother is 85, lives with us, along with my lovely wife and my two children, and I just couldn't be happier about it. She's better than the mom I had as a child. So I love having a multi-generational family living together. Uh, Professor Harvey, your research is focused on young children living in doubled-up households. How does this kind of arrangement affect the group? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So... Families with young children who live in doubled-up households um, most often move uh, into someone else's home because of these housing needs, um, right? But then they also often receive this sort of broader support. Oftentimes it can increase um, child care support from having someone live with them. Um, And additionally, whenever families with children um, sort of host, they share their housing with another family or with another adult, um, they're providing some economic support and housing support, but they often also also um, receive this housing support, or I'm sorry, this economic support as well, right? So their guests often contribute to the housing costs. They often share their child care. Um, so we see them benefit um, mainly through economic support, child care support. Um, and then, of course, as some of your other guests have talked about, um, there's sort of this social support. So some families that I interviewed talked about the w- the wisdom that's passed down from one generation to another, um, how they're able to spend time as an extended family that you typically don't get to do as an adult. Um, So there are lots of these benefits, um, but at the same time, there are also some costs. So one thing that Michelle brought up that um, I thought was interesting and is really echoed in my sample is that uh, her children were reluctant to move back in. And I spoke with families um, with parents of young children, and I found that this was probably particularly true for mothers with um, children ages three to eight. They were particularly hesitant to move back into someone else's home. Um, and this is really for two main reasons. First, parents expect to be able to provide housing for their children. Um, and so being reliant on someone else for housing can sort of rub up against that. Um, but then also moving back into someone else's home um, involves giving up some authority. And parents, of course, think of themselves as adults, um, but they also expect to have this authority over child care or child rearing. And so living under someone else's roof can also make that challenging. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about perhaps the conversations you should have before entering one of these arrangements, Alexandra. We heard a bit from Michelle that she had these agreements with her kids about what their goals were going to be, um, you know, how that check-in process, what that was going to look like for them. If someone's 
thinking about starting a multi-generational household, household, can you give us a bit of a guide for how to start that conversation and what you need to make sure is included in that conversation? Sure. I think there's kind of two buckets here. One bucket is sort of like logistics and sort of looking at domestic life. How will we do this domestic living together? That's one bucket. And the other bucket is emotions, right? How will we deal with the emotions that are inevitably going to come up in, in within us? And so I think having agreements around how we do domesticity together and having shared expectations. And I think expectations go best when they have these four qualities. The expectations are reasonable versus, you know, unrealistic or pie in the sky. Second, they're mutual. They're kind of created relationally versus, you know, top down or frankly, bottom up, right? The young folks dictating or the elders dictating. I like the idea of mutual expectations. The third would be that the expectations are articulated rather than assumed. When we don't articulate clear expectations around chores, around how we spend time, then we only know an expectation has been violated when it's not met, right? So articulating them to the degree we can. And then fourth, that they're agreed upon, that everyone looks in each other's eyes and says, okay, we can live by that, versus that they're forced on each other. So I like that idea of just kind of walking through the day, looking at use of space, and having a lot of it be about courtesy. What are the courtesies that we give each other? And we give each other these courtesies because we have the highest values in mind, whether that be peace in our home, well-being for all, creating something that feels sustainable to all of us. So these are going to go best when they when they feel tied to what we as a family value together. I, I want to hear a little bit more, Alexander. Alexander, we hear about um, elders being isolated and concerns about what that means for their mental and physical health. What are the benefits for seniors and older adults who are living with their adult children or their grandchildren? Absolutely. I mean, you just said it. The the research around loneliness is crystal clear. We don't do well when we are lonely, which is different than being alone, right? Solitude is chosen and solitude can be really essential, perhaps even more so for people in multi-generational households. I want them to be able to step away and have alone time if and when they want it. But that's radically different than loneliness, which has mental health and physical health consequences. So you're right that elders who get the get the chance to live with loved ones. That's wonderful. And it also is so good for the younger folks to live with elders. And it cuts against all of that gnarly, sneaky ageism we have in our world. Like to really see our elders as valued and deeply belonging within our systems is so good for the younger people and the children who get that opportunity. Michelle, you know, we've talked a lot about the benefits of living in a multi-generational household, but what's lost when young people don't have the opportunity to live independently. I I will say, speaking from personal experience, there were certain things I didn't learn until I was living on my own. Like when the toilet paper was out, that was nobody's fault but, but mine. So do you have any concerns around that for your kids? Well, no, no, I actually don't. And I get that a lot from people was like, well, they're not going to learn X. Listen, they're only in their 20s. And, you know, I'm not in my 20s. I got a couple decades ahead of them. (laughs) And so you've got that's just one blip on their life. Right. You know, we're talking max five, maybe six years, if that. And so they have plenty of time to learn. And when the toilet paper goes out, uh, well, you better reach for a towel. You know, (laughs) 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 I mean, we sort of always 
always think that everything has to happen now. There's, it, you know, it's just like, I was just talking to my husband that said, you know, our kids were late. They were late in learning how to use the bathroom, you know, without wetting themselves. And everybody there too, and they're like, what? They can't go to the bathroom. And I was like, look, they're not going to be 10 wearing the pens. You know, I mean, it's, they're going to learn it. And it's just going to be a minor blip. And it's the same thing with young adults. They will have their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s to understand what it means to fully pay for everything. But what's the but biggest challenge now, you faced in this arrangement, Michelle? I, I have to imagine it hasn't all been easy. Oh, no, it's not easy. <laughs> That's why I call my best friend every morning. <laughs> I can't say what I say on air. I'll be swearing. Of course, it's not always easy, you know, because we, we're switching the dynamics, you know, mom and dad and children, and now it's adult to adult. And so there are times where, you know, I slip into that mommy role and I'm like, you know, more demanding than I should. And there are times where they like to play the kid, you know, like, for example, when, you know, we're ordering out, they're like, oh, you're going to treat. I'm like, you are a grown person now. And so, you know, so we have to say, give us the money towards, you know, X. And so it's not, um, it's not always easy. Um, there is a lot. And I love those four points uh, that you talked about, uh, about, you know, expectations. And so we are constantly having conversations. If it gets a little out of whack and some people are feeling a little funky, we pull it in. Okay, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And and that's what makes it work, knowing that it's going to go off rail sometimes, but we don't let it get to the point where people are pulling their hair out. And we have always been like that as a family. We have family meals. We talk it out in a respectful way. Uh, and if it gets to a point where we can't do that, then you have your friends and your therapist because I believe in therapy. Same. And I tell my therapist <laughs> that I want to choke them. And she says, please don't choke them. Let's talk it out. You know. So I don't want anybody to think that this is like all pie in the sky. But it works the majority of the time because we have agreed upon uh, living arrangements. We have set expectations and we continually talk it out. And basically, we love each other and they know that we want this for them so that when they launch, they won't come back. And that makes it, I'm delighted to have them here, even when they get on my nerves. Michelle, you're playing the long game. You're like, once you leave, stay gone. We're talking to Michelle Singletary. She's a personal finance columnist for the Washington Post, Hope Harvey, an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Kentucky, and Alexandra Solomon, a clinical psychologist specializing in families, relationships, and marriages. Alexandra, what advice can you give to families trying to negotiate some of the tricky dynamics that arise in these living situations? Well, I've got I've got two thoughts. I mean, I really think she did a beautiful job of laying out those complexities. I mean, you know, first of all, accepting accepting that things are going to be messy. Messy doesn't mean it's broken. Messy doesn't mean it's not working. It just means that's the nature of relationships. Another thought I have is I love this really simple tool called that I call going meta, like talking about talking. So like when you know, like asking, I could imagine this mama asking her adult daughter like. When I see you and your husband, you know, have gotten into a fight, do you want me to check in with you or do you want me to let you come to me? Like kind of asking about asking, right? Like where do you want the boundaries? Should I pursue you? Should I hang back and let you pursue me? And the third thought I have, (laughs) there's three, not two. The third (laughs) thought I have is, um, 
is this is a wonderful place for family therapy. You know, family therapists do, they are trained to work with systems. I think we, we usually think of family therapy as for parents and young kids, but my gosh, I love when I get to do um, family therapy with generations of adults. So that is a really appropriate use of systemic therapy. So what you'd be looking for there is somebody who does family work. So I could see a situation where the three of them do some work with a therapist to kind of minimize friction and maximize, you know, peace and ease in the situation that was not chosen, but is a sounds like a, a really healthy strategic adaptation to a difficult situation. Professor Harvey, really briefly, what trends are you watching when we think about multi-generational households or doubled up households? Do you think we're going to continue to see increases? Yeah. So um, I think that I'm interested in where we see the increases in particular. So there's no sign of um, the increases stopping. I know that we had um, some increase during COVID, although it's come back down. But I'm particularly interested in where we see the increases. So in recent years, we've seen more economically advantaged groups have larger um, increases in three-generation households. So older mothers, married mothers, mothers with higher education. Um, So doubling up in multi-generational households remain more common among more disadvantaged groups, but we've seen larger increases among those more advantaged groups. Um, So as we go into the future, I am really interested in whether those trends continue and whether um, sort of disadvantage continues to predict multi-generational households or not. We've got just about 20 seconds here. Quick sentence, Michelle. Any last thoughts or advice for families? Um, I think talk it out. I love that we've been talking about therapy. And just know that this can work. It's just a minor time in their lifespan to be able to have some financial freedom from all the expense that come with living on your own. And Alexandra, your last thoughts, especially when we're talking about families that aren't necessarily young people moving in with elders, but sometimes it's the reverse. That's right. I just think that the, you know, the quality of our relationships matter. So anything that they do to invest in the quality of how they spend time together, that matters. So don't bury it under the rug. Try to talk it through and lead with curiosity. Lead with curiosity. That's Alexandra Solomon, a licensed clinical psychologist at Northwestern University. Also with us, Michelle Singletary, a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, and Hope Harvey, an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Kentucky. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.